0: This scripture reading is from Revelations, so the scripture reading is actually from Revelations chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 22, but Chuck's only asked me to read two of the passages, so I have a little bit uh, of a reprieve here. So chapter 2 can be found on page 867 in the Pew Bibles. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we'll skip to um, verse 12 on the next page. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaches, teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching, teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: Uh, Since we prayed this morning for David and Jackie, and. You know, this is the beginning of the year where many of you may be new or not coming regularly and wouldn't know actually who they are in our midst. I'd ask David and Jackie to stand and just for a moment face the congregation. Okay, thank you. Um, we were really uh, disappointed with them when they had to leave the country where they serve and come back to the U.S. for a while. But we've been delighted to have them in our midst for a couple of years. Now, my understanding is that they will be leaving within a year. So if you want to get to know them at all, well, since all of you want to get to know them, you need to start spacing it out so you can see them. The last month they're here, two months they're there, they'll be too busy for you. I would say this. If you have a heart for missions, you should get to know them. If you don't. If you have a heart for East Asia, you should get to know them. And if you don't know what the euphemism East Asia means, you should get to know them. If you have a heart for the persecuted church, you should get to know them. If you are afraid of becoming a missionary, get to know them, because then you'll no longer be afraid about it. So anyway, you get the idea, get to know them, if you haven't. Okay, so this is the beginning of a new academic year, and we will have always, at this time of year, we always have a lot of visitors, and, you know, we want you to find this a warm, inviting home, you know, we we try to be friendly, have upbeat worship service, smile a lot, so you know that this, we we feed you lunch, and if it's your first time, you get a free lunch, you know, and if you've been here before, you get $2 lunch, you know, we want you to make you really feel at home. So in, in that, you know, we hope you find this a friendly and a warm environment where you can always be encouraged and uplifted. So in that spirit, this morning's sermon makes the point that if you think you're saved, you may not actually be saved. <laughs> you know, what do you do with this kind of thing at the beginning of a new, new year? Uh, basically, this is the reality of the text, is that Revelation is written to people who are undergoing some very difficult circumstance. And the message is very sobering. You know, we could duck it or we could face it. And because it's scripture, we don't duck it. I mentioned last week in the first sermon series that a lot of books now, a lot of sermons, you know, stories. Stories are interesting. People like stories. You know, you get a new book, a theology book, it'll be often full of stories. And anecdotes from the author's life. And there's a basic problem with it, is that then our theology is based on our experience rather than on the Word of God or on Scripture. And there's no telling what direction our theology will go in if it's based on our experience. So I was just reading another book on grace. Grace is a really popular topic to talk about today. A lot of books on Grace but most of them are filled with people's personal experience and you know the, the nature of a conservative church is being what it is a, a lot of these guys who write will have been grown up in a conservative church and conservative churches are, are typically we're really worried about our kids because we see what the world is like and, and we see what harm can be done. And so in a conservative church, you'll often preach, okay, do this, don't do that. This is how you should live. This is how you not should, should not live. And, and we create a, a, a real a strict environment. And what happens is that often kids that are raised in that kind of a strict environment, they will come out and they will feel oppressed by it. You know, It was always about rules. It was always about don't do this. It was always about the fear of the world or the fear of sin and always about the danger of coming up to judgment. And then people will react about it. They'll they'll react against it. And they'll now write a book about grace. And grace becomes a buzzword. And instead of defining grace by Scripture, instead of saying, what does the Bible teach us about grace? Then often what people will do, authors will do, is they'll define grace from their experience. They'll say something like, I grew up in a church without grace. A church full of rules. A church with an oppressive environment. And here's what grace is. Here's what grace should feel like. A grace should feel like a great liberation, a great feeling of freedom, a positive upbuilding. And they'll define grace in reaction to their upbringing. Or they'll define grace in terms of their experience, not by Scripture. It's a real danger if we use Christian buzzwords, but we don't define them the way Scripture does. So today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2 to 3, there's actually Paul, um, excuse me, John writes to seven different churches. We won't look at all of them. We won't have time, but we'll look at a couple of them because the, the, all the letters, seven letters are quite similar and we went through them one by one last year. So we'll go through them briefly, all of them together once this year as a, as a foundation for the sermons to follow. But what we want to look at is this. What do these passages, they don't use the word grace, but what do these passages teach us about grace? What do these passages teach us about salvation? And I have only two points in this entire sermon. First of all, the first thesis is this. Every one of these seven letters to seven churches tells us that salvation is a lot harder to attain than what most of us have been taught. Salvation is surprisingly hard to attain and maintain than what we've learned. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We'll look at the first letter to the seven churches, page 867. And you want to have your pew Bible open. If it's a pew Bible, page 867. You want to have your Bible open because we're going to look at a little bit of the detail. And, And I haven't chosen the first one just because it's the most easy to make my point. I've chosen the first one because it is the first. What did the people in Ephesus need to do for their salvation? In order to maintain their salvation, in order to get to heaven, in order to have a good relationship with God, what was necessary? What did God require of them? Let's take a look at it together, Ephesians chapter 2. What we'll see as we look at the church of Ephesus, what we would see as we look at any of the churches, is that salvation is a lot harder to attain than what we might have thought. So Revelation chapter 2, I I begin reading at verse 2. Let's look, first of all, the author, where any church has done anything well, the author highlights it. So let's look, first of all, at what the church in Ephesus did well. Verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. You've persevered, And have endured hardships for my name. And you have not grown weary. So look at all of these items. Now some of them are are repetitive for emphasis. But look at all these items. What have they done in their relationship with God? First of all, he commends them for their deeds. They didn't just believe in Jesus. They served Jesus. They served Jesus. They served the church. They have good deeds to back up their claim to faith. Not only do they have good deeds, I know your deeds, but your hard work. Some of those deeds require diligence and effort. And they didn't say, well, this is too hard. They didn't say, oh, I'm tired, I'm busy. They didn't say, I'm burned out. They, they engaged in Christian deeds, even to the point where it was hard. On top of that, they persevered. They didn't just give it up when it got difficult. They served God. They served God with effort effort. They serve God with persistence. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. Verse, second half of verse two. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. Here's the second thing. All this work that they did, and the perseverance, the hard work, the the labor. Here's the second thing. In their church, you know, this is the early years of the Christian movement, right? They didn't have the New Testament. They know that something has happened in Jesus. And the Old Testament tells them a little bit about it, but it doesn't tell them a lot. So in their church, they had some people that had some eccentric ideas about what it meant to be a Christian. Some eccentric ideas of what it meant that Jesus had come. They had in their church what we would call false teachers or heretics. And we'll look at some of the details of that later on. But notice their response. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And you've found them false. So not only have they served God diligently, they've also examined the teaching within their church and the various teachers that were passing through their church, and they said, this is truth, this is error, and they stood for truth and they opposed error. So they were studious and diligent in the application of Scripture to theology, and they had worked hard. Notice verse 3. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. In the ancient world, it was required that everyone show respect to the Roman government, that everyone be compliant with the Roman government. And one way you show that is by engaging in emperor worship. You didn't have to believe in the emperor, but that he was really a god. A lot of the emperors themselves didn't believe they were god. But you had to honor the Roman government and you had to honor the Roman emperor. And if you didn't, you were persecuted. And the Christians faced persecution because they would worship no other gods. They faced persecution from the Roman government, and they faced persecution from the synagogue because the synagogue thought they were heretics. So what did these people do? How did they respond to persecution? You've persevered. You've endured hardship. You have not grown weary. All of these things, seven, eight items, maybe at least three items in in repetition, they've served God, they've held to sound theology, and they've persevered in the midst of persecution. If anybody, salvation was secure, wouldn't you think it's these people? They've served God diligently and persistently. They've taught sound theology and rejected bad theology, and they've persevered in the midst of suffering. And yet, what does Jesus say to them? Verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will dissolve your church. I will break up your church. If you do not repent, I will come to you and you will be face judgment. So the author, despite their hard work, Despite their sound theology, despite their perseverance and hardship, the author warns them, you know, you're at risk of divine judgment. Why? You've forsaken your first love. Now, we really need to understand what this does mean and what it doesn't mean. You know how it is as, you know, the first time you fall in love, I don't know, when you're maybe a teenager or some of you, anyway... Some of you, maybe when you're 35, but when you first fall in love, actually, your life will be a lot easier if you wait until you're 30 or 35 than if you start at 15. There's a whole lot of stuff going on that's really hard to handle at 15. It's hard to handle at 30 or 35, but you've got more experience crying by then and you can get over it quicker. But. You know, the first time you fall in love, oh, this is just so wonderful, just so spectacular. And there's a technical term for it called limerence, but in English we would call it infatuation. And it's just, you know, never has there been someone more spectacular in all my life. I've never known anyone as wonderful as this. And your mother gets insulted because she's been cooking you food and washing your clothes for a long time, you know. But this is just Wonderful. And so we take that experience and often and we read it into the New Testament and say, well, that's what it is. And many of us who became, you know, I was maybe uh, 17 when I became a Christian, if we didn't, did not grow up in Christian homes, if you grew up in a Christian home, you probably take this stuff for granted. But if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you first become a Christian. I remember it was just so spectacular when I first became a Christian. I hadn't grown up in a Christian. I'd never really heard the gospel before, I think. I think I accepted the gospel the first weekend I ever heard it. I don't remember hearing it before that. And it was just so spectacular that Jesus loved me enough to die for me. This is extraordinary. And it was really, for like the first three months, it was really, at a, I just couldn't get over it. And then after that, some of the dips and valleys of life took over. you know. And, and so when I thought, there's something wrong with me, spiritually. You know, I'm turning away from God because it's not always extraordinarily exciting anymore. And so we read that infatuation of romance into our relationship with Christ, or we experience this infatuation with Christ, and we think, this is what God calls us to. So I can remember, I had been a Christian about a year and a half. Spectacular thing happened. I shared the gospel with my mother, and she got converted. I was becoming intimidated by my father, so I didn't want to share the gospel with my father, but he happened to be watching Billy Graham on TV, and he gave his life to Christ. And after I'd been a Christian about a year and a half, I came home at Easter from, from college for their baptism. And, you know, I was in the worship service, they were baptized, and I stayed there for that. And then after their baptism, before the service was over, I slipped out because it was just so emotion. My own life was so emotionally dry. And I thought, you know, this is such an extraordinary thing. You know, I've become a Christian, my parents... This is really... I sh- you know, I should be celebrating. And I, and I thought maybe I was wandering from God. I thought maybe my, my heart was growing cold and I worried about this. And, and I worried about a verse like this. You've forsaken your first love. And does this mean I'm coming under judgment? Now, subsequently, you know, when I was teaching theology, I had a student who was a psychologist and he mentioned that many of his patients, Christian patients, come to him because they go through stages like this, you know... Many of actually his patients, he said, come to him because they've become neurotic because they kept trying to get this infatuation, keep going. You know, this this vigor, a first conversion, this excitement. Every day they tried to keep it whipped up and whipped up and whipped up and finally they had a nervous breakdown and they have to go in for therapy or or treatment. You know, there are high points in life. There are low points. You know, we can't control these emotional cycles. That's not what this text is talking about. This text does not say every day you're a Christian, you have to be as excited as the first day you became a Christian. That's not what it means to maintain your first love. John doesn't explain it here. What does it mean? He doesn't tell us here because it's familiar. If you look up in the Old Testament, it was familiar to him, it was familiar to his readers. If you look up in the Old Testament, forsaking your first love, it means turning away from Jesus. Look at all the things they had done. Their deeds, their hard work, their patience, their perseverance. Look at this. They couldn't tolerate heresy. And they studied the Bible enough to recognize what was heretical and what was true. And look at this. They endured hardships. But here's the thing. They'd gotten to the point where the cost was getting greater than the return. Their past was noble, but their future was uncertain. They didn't know if it was worth keep going on. They were getting, they were, they were at the point where they were equivocating. Do I still follow Jesus with my whole heart? That's what it's talking about. Red against the background, it's not about keeping that infatuation going. It's about keeping that commitment and that dedication going. And there will be times of great celebration. And there will be times when it's just discipline. Where we keep going, not because it's an emotional buzz, but because this is the God. Who was committed to us, and we will be committed to him? He was committed to us when it was hard, and we will be committed to him when it's hard. This is what it means, because in the Old Testament, whenever we read about forsaking your first love, or forsaking God, or forsaking the, the wells, forsaking the rivers for the broken cisterns, it was always about Jews turning away from God, turning toward other gods, turning toward other things in their lives. Giving up God as their priority. Here's the warning to the church in Ephesus. You've done great things for God. You've worked hard. You've got these good deeds. You've persevered. You've rejected heresy. You've embraced the truth. You've persevered, endured suffering and hardship. But here's the thing. It's not good enough to look past, look to the past and say, we've come this far. What you've got to do is look to the future and keep it going. Notice the key to all of this is verse 7. To him who overcomes. And that's the story throughout all of these seven letters. Every one of them, the church is facing some kind of challenge. The Christians are facing some kind of obstacle. And the refrain at the end of every letter, every one of these seven letters, the refrain to all of these churches is the same. To him who overcomes. To him who faces this challenge and maybe gets beat up by it. It doesn't... Overcome doesn't mean you're, you're successful. Jesus overcame and he died. Some of these people are going to die for their faith. But they will overcome. They will persist with Jesus throughout their lives. It's not just the work they've done in the past. They will continue to serve him. It's not just the heresy they've rejected in the past. They will continue to be faithful to sound theology and sound teaching and God as he's revealed in scripture. It's not just that they survived persecution in the past but they must survive it in the future. Salvation is a lot harder than we often think because often we date our salvation from the date of our conversion. That's not how Revelation 2 and 3 assess salvation. Revelation 2 and 3 assesses salvation not from the beginning of our Christian lives, but by the end of our Christian lives. Now, Maybe some of you have enough theology to know what Calvinism means and what Arminianism means. So those of you who don't know what Calvinism is or what Arminianism is, you get a 60-second hiatus. Not long enough to fall asleep, but you can let your mind wander. Think about, I don't know, it's not a nice day today, but think about some of the fun time you had at the beach this summer. Now, for those of you who are Calvinists and Arminians and are a little bit worried because maybe what I'm saying sounds like it's not Calvinist and you're Calvinist. You haven't learned the right Calvinism. 20th century Calvinism is a very strange thing. It's a modern innovation. Historic Calvinism Calvinism taught this. You measure the legitimacy of someone's Christian life by the end of the life, not by the beginning. And for those of you who are more dedicated Arminians, let me tell you this. Arminianism has always taught, both ancient and current, that you measure the legitimacy of somebody's faith by the end of their life, not by the beginning of it. They have both taught the same things. There is a difference between them, but not at this point. Here's the the point. Salvation is a lot harder than we may think. And our salvation is assessed or defined not by how our Christian lives began, but by how they end and by the process in between time. So these Ephesians are not defined solely by the past things which commend them. They've done well. They've loved and served God. They've stood for sound theology. They've opposed heresy. They've persevered and endured persecution. What the author is telling them is, you've done well, you've got a good foundation. Keep it up. Because if you drop it, if you turn from God because of these pressures on your life, then God will turn from you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the the Spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes, to him who perseveres in the midst of life's obstacles. It's very common in these books I mentioned on grace, a very slogan is circulated, not just in books, but it's circulated widely in the church, that Christ died for my sins, all my sins, past, present, and future. Any of you guys with a uh, concordance on your you know, personal electronic devices, Feel free to look that up. And, and not, not, I don't want to know what, what book it came from. Feel free to look for it in the Bible. Not now. Some other time. I've never seen that in the Bible. I, I know no verse that says, Christ died for my sins, all my sins, past, present, and future. I know a lot of verses that tell me that my future sins matter a great deal. And, and, and this is one of those verses. It's not enough that we start. We've got to finish Salvation is a lot harder than what we've taught to believe. It's not just coming to faith, praying to receive Christ, asking Him to forgive my sins, and then whatever else comes next is frosting on the cake or or gravy on the meat. It's a lifetime of obedience, slow progress in the one direction for the entirety of our lives. We could do as much as the Ephesians did, and then we could turn from Christ as they were considering. And then it counts for naught. The legitimacy of our Christian life and walk is not measured by a single day in the past or even by years in the past. The legitimacy of our Christian profession of faith is measured by our progress and by the end. He who overcomes, Jesus says, seven times he says, he who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Seven times to seven churches facing seven challenges. Our Christian lives are measured by the present and the future more than by the past. That's the first thesis here. Seven times he says it. I won't take you through all seven. Right now here's a second thesis. What we want to do is we want to look, and the reason I asked Jason to read a second passage is we want to look at two particular sins he focuses on. If you would identify two places where Christian faith is at odds with our culture. If you were going to identify two places where we are really at odds with our culture, what would they be? You don't have to call them out. I'll suggest them in a moment. But think about it for a moment. Two places where we are really out of step with our culture, where would it be? Let me suppose it would be Christian exclusivism, that Christ is the only way to God. Number one. I should have had to tell each other. Number two, let me suggest it would be our standard on sexual, immor- uh, sexual morality and immorality. I would suppose that these are the two most obvious places. One theory, theoretical, one practical, where we differ from our culture, where our culture thinks we're just way out of step, is one is Christian exclusive. How can Christ be the only way to God? And the other is sexual immorality. Two of these churches suffered with exactly those issues. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. Here's a church that has done well. And yet, what does Jesus say to them? I have a few things against you. What He's actually got two things. What are the two things? You have people there in your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. How? How did Balak in the Old Testament teach? Or how did Balaam in the Old Testament teach Balak to entice the Israelites to sin? Two ways. By eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Take a look at verse 20. Nevertheless, chapter 2, verse 20. I have this against you, he says, toward the second church. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching she misleads my servants into what? Two things. Same two things. Sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Let me elaborate both of these. Why would any Christian church, why would teachers, elders in a Christian church teach people that food offered idols is okay? And what does that mean to us? See, here's the thing. In the first century, I've noticed already, I've commented already, you had to honor the emperor. And one of the ways to honor him was making food offerings. And then you'd take those food offerings and go back home. And, you, and you'd eat them back at home. And here's the thing. It's, it's like uh, World War II Japan. Everybody, you're living close together. Basically, in the ancient world, if you lived in a city, you lived in a tenement. Of one family per room in a, in a big wooden tenement, maybe four stories. Everyone knew your business. Everyone knew how you lived. And they would have neighbor, neighborhood parties whose purpose was to honor the local gods, to honor the Roman gods, and to honor the emperor. And if you didn't go to the neighborhood parties, everybody knew you weren't going. If you refused to worship the emperor, people knew it. Now, you didn't have to believe it. Even the emperors, many of them didn't believe it. There was one emperor, Vespasian. I think it was Vespasian. Vespasian, Vespasian, Vespasian. Anyway, we have a record from roughly first century. On his deathbed, you see, basically emperors became deified, divinized when they died. On his deathbed, he was being sarcastic, he said, as he was overtaken by the pains of whatever was killing him. He said, I feel myself beginning to become a god. He didn't think he was a god. He knew it It was just a political thing. Now, let's suppose you're in a first century church. And you're going to die if you say don't worship the emperor. But no one cares if you believe. All they care is you you do this thing, you do this ritual. And so the early Christians, some of them would say, we don't have to believe it, we can just do it and get safe. We'll be all right. And so they'd say, it's okay to do it. Now I would say the closest comparable activity we have today is not, we don't offer things to idols, people don't do that much in, in this country. Other countries, they do. But for us, I would say the closest thing we have is that there is salvation in no one else other than Jesus, and we must worship him alone. We can't worship anyone else. We can't participate in anyone else's worship. We're exclusive, and it's offensive. And a lot of people will say, let's downplay it. Let's not make a big deal out of it. Let's kind of loosen things up a little bit, because otherwise we offend people we're trying to reach. In the first century, they could have argued the same thing. We're trying to reach our friends and our neighbors. We can't go to meals with them because they're offering food to their idols. We want to reach them. Let's soft pedal this thing. Let's downplay it. You know, let's not highlight the idea that the only way people come to faith, come to God, is through Jesus. And so you see that recent book that I mentioned a year, uh, months ago in a sermon, uh, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Basically, the idea that everyone somehow, one way or another, we are hopeful that everyone's going to get to heaven some way. And people like that, and they'll more readily come out, and they'll more readily accept a message like that. There's only one problem with it. It's not true. But it's palatable. In the first century, we go along to get along. the 21st century, we go along to get along. So that's one problem, it's food offered to idols, Christian exclusivism. Now here's another one, sexual immorality. Now you know, you read the Bible, right? How could any first century church say sexual immorality is okay? I mean, come on, right? But it doesn't take much to figure out why they, think of it, why they might say it's okay. Think about our lives today. Wouldn't it go a lot easier for us individually and wouldn't it go a lot easier for us in our relationship with our communities if we just said, you know, sexual immorality, well, it's not ideal. But never mind, don't sweat it. it. You know, whatever. God loves us anyway. God will save us anyway. You know, we can, whatever. We go along, get along. God's, uh, God, Christ died for all my sins, past, present, and future. You know, if you want to be on campus and celibate, you're an oddity. Lolo Jones never won a gold medal. And she didn't win any medal at the Olympics. But she got featured. You know, b- big news items. Why? Well, for two things. One, she got featured because she said, I'm 29 years old. I think 29. I'm 29 years old. I'm still a virgin. I've never had sex. It's been hard, but, but it's been harder not to have sex at 29 as a single woman than it has been to, to try out for the Olympics. So she got a lot of attention for that. She also got attention for posing nude for some magazine, which was a real bizarre thing. But anyway, we won't go there. But you know, the, the reality is, the reality is, oh guys, don't go looking on that up on the internet today, right? Don't, no no internet searches for Lolo Jones? All right, The reality is that we're odd. If you speak about sexual moral, moral standards today, and not just homosexuality, but if we talk about heterosexuality, these are odd standards. It's a lot easier if we just downplay it. Don't make a big deal. Yeah, it's not ideal. Maybe it hurt you. Maybe it hurt the relationship. Maybe it hurt the other person. But you shouldn't do it. But don't worry about it. You know, come. You know, God will, God will forgive you. the God, God's not occupied with that. And, and we're not just talking about the hookup culture. How about Christian couples that are dating? that are engaged. It's a whole lot easier to say, it's not a big deal. You shouldn't. Try not to. But never mind. Christ died for your sins. It's a whole lot easier to go along, to get along. But think about the church in Ephesus. Think about these other churches. Some of them were dying for their faith and God still said to them, don't give up Christian exclusivism. Don't condone sexual immorality. Now, let me give you three brief positives about the whole the sexual issue. First of all, you know the negative, right? Even if you're engaged. Scripture clearly says sexual immorality is a huge problem for your relationship with God. Secondly, if you're dating or you're engaged... Get some safeguards in place. And don't just tell me, or don't just tell each other, well, we're not going to have sex. Come on. Get some safeguards. This whole thing about, uh, you know, uh, the way Americans date now, particularly if you're a young adult, you got your own apartment, he's got his own apartment, you're spending time late at night in each other's apartments, come on. Staying overnight, maybe, come on. You know accountability, small groups. Hey, if you're in a small group, don't make them ask you. If you're dating and you're in a small group, say, look, look guys, here's what my standards are. Here's what we've agreed we're going to do this. And then every week you meet together as a small group, say, yeah, we kept those standards. Or, or, or no, we violated those standards. And let the guys, give the guys permission to beat up on your bit if you're breaking your standards. Give them permission to report you to the deacons. And give the deacons permission to report you to the pastor. Um, you know, this is serious, really, stuff. You know, because Jesus said to these people who survived persecution, you can survive persecution, but you might not survive sexual immorality. And then the third thing is, if this continue, if this is a problem, look, we've got, Gerald was just sharing uh, about real here, and Gerald and Katie, we've got a group here to help you with this, with to help you with sexual purity. Join the group. In summary, here's the two theses. Actually making it to heaven, actually sustaining our relationship with Jesus is a lot more challenging than we've ever been told. It's influenced as much by the present and the future as it is by the past. And secondly, there are two particular spiritual dangers they faced, which are the same two that we face, religious relativism and sexual immorality. The underlying issue is this. What's going to set the direction of our lives? Is it going to be the Bible? Or is it going to be stories we hear? You know, I'm concerned about dealing with a passage like this, this early in the semester when there's a new people here and it might set the tone for the future. But, but look at this. So let me give you two examples. And with this, I'll close. Yesterday, I went to a house of a church member to get my, to help get some instruction and help with repairing my car. Uh, my brakes were making a squealing noise or a, kind of rummy noise and I thought maybe these brakes aren't so good and I looked up my records and I hadn't had a new front brake job for 100,000 miles 98,000 miles out of a set of brakes man did I do good you know your pastor is a calm driver if he can get 100,000 miles out of a set of brakes I'm good I'm also cheap alright so I go I drive over and I said I think it's the brakes I don't know much about what I'm doing I think it's the brakes and I drive in and the guy says yeah you got a brake problem we ought to take care of this now, that's not very kind, is it? What he should have told me is, I think you're wonderful. And I think your car is wonderful. You'll be fine. Just let's celebrate how wonderful we all are and we'll go on our way. And then you drive on the highway, and you get in an accident. Well, what a pity, but, but you're wonderful and your car is wonderful and everything's fine. Or, let's take this example. I knew a guy who was sick. Well, he didn't know what was wrong. He just knew something was wrong. He had a lot of pain, pain in the hip. And he went to the doctor. The doctor, you know, checked him over and said, no, you're fine, really, you're okay. Maybe it's just something passing. A month later, he went back to, to the doctor and said, no, I can't live with this. You know, I can't walk. It hurts. Doctor put him in the hospital, ran a battery of tests, a whole week in the hospital. Says, no, we can't find anything. You're fine. Maybe it's a virus. It'll go. It'll pass. He's talking to a bartender. That he knows. And the bartender said, you know, you better pay attention to that. He said, I had a customer like that with those same kind of symptoms and he had cancer. Maybe you ought to get it checked out. So the guy, this guy I know, flew up to Leahy Clinic here in Boston, Leahy Clinic, got checked for cancer, got checked. He didn't tell him what was, they didn't, he didn't know what was wrong. He he went to the hospital. They ran a couple of tests the first day. The second day they said to him, we're going to operate. You have cancer. We got to operate immediately. That wasn't very nice. Cutting them open. Took them a long time to heal. You know, a doctor's there to make you feel good. They're there to say, oh, you're you're nice. You're nice people. I like you. I'm nice people. You're nice people. You're okay. Don't worry about it. Life is nice. We would not tolerate a car mechanic that treated us that way. We would not tolerate a doctor that treated us that way. We shouldn't ask God to treat us that way. We shouldn't ask the Bible to treat us that way. If the Bible says, there's a problem here and it could be fatal, then we read and we say, oh, there's a problem here and it could be fatal. I don't want to die. I want Jesus. And the thing is, we don't need to die because Jesus is available. All we need to do is throw ourselves on his grace and follow him all our lives. He who overcomes, to him, Jesus will give the right to inherit the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do ask for your grace in our lives. Not simply the grace that brings us to faith, but the grace that sustains us in holiness. Grant us your grace. And Father, may you grant us the courage to be gracious to each other, so that we help each other persevere in this faith in Jesus name amen
0: please rise with me.